Hello and welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. Tonight, I am going to be talking with Professor Wham, and she has had a lot of thoughts over the years about all kinds of strange things, all of the paranormal. It's she's she's kind of like me. If it's weird, she's into it. She likes to know. She likes to figure it out. Questions are appealing to her. But what we're going to talk about tonight is actually a, a slightly narrower version of everything. We're going to talk a lot about Paula Harris and Jacques Vallée's newest book, Trinity, the Best Kept Secret, which now is in a second edition. Um, she, uh, but, uh, but Wham wrote, a really nice series of blog posts just recently where she said she was going to review the book, but then she started talking about other things that related to the book, and it just became this wonderful, personal, um, but global series of meditations and thoughts. So I'm going to turn it over. Hello, Wham. How you doing? Well, tonight I'm doing all right. I might Good. cough a little bit. I'm getting over something. Not COVID. I don't oh. know what it is. I got tested well, like three or four times, but it's. Well, I'm glad you don't have it because I did not like that when yeah, I had well, it. I had it early in the trajectory of the disease and did not like it. Oh, that's and did worse. not like it either. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a very likable virus. Well, I, in fact, it, I pretty much detested it, it. So. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty nasty. All right. So. When you read Trinity and you thought that you were going to be writing a simple review of it, what was one of the things that really jumped out at you that you wanted to convey? Well, when I started reading it, one of the things that impressed me about it, and keep in mind, I've read like virtually everything that Jacques Vallée has written, except maybe some of his fiction. Um, and that's just because I'm not much of a fiction reader. <laughs> Um, but I think the thing that struck me was the difference in his tone. Uh, and let me explain that a little bit. Um, if you've read Jacques, Jacques Vallée, you know that, you know two things about him. You know, number one, that he's a scientist. And so he always brings his expertise in science to to the party. Um, but he's also been very interested in the impact that these kinds of experiences, UFO experiences, contact experiences, um, encounters, have had on individual people and then on society. You know, whether these things are symbol become symbolic narratives or whatever it is they are. <laughs> and so that those are like two areas that he's always been in. Um, and this book is interesting because he actually didn't do a lot of the initial research about it, which might be part of the controversy surrounding some of it. Um, the, the, the main um, interviews, um, the, uh, the initial collection of um, so-called physical data, all that kind of stuff, was was done by um, Paola Harris or Leopizzi. Is that how you pronounce her last name? Mm -hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. 
And, um, um, and she had been working on this case for quite a while. And it was not, according to Ballet, it was not actually her that brought his attention to this, to this account, um, the, the Trinity account, as he puts it. I, I call it something a little bit different in my in my blog because um, I think it because I try to call it uh, according to the witnesses um, the Baca Padilla case. That's how I refer to it because those are the two principal witnesses. <coughs> they saw this when they were young, you know, little tiny boys, really. Um, but. He, this story or this account was brought to his attention by a friend of his who he has done a lot of research with. I think the guy was named Ron Berkeley or something like that. That's the name of the guy. I, yeah, I, I know his first <laughs> name was Ron. And I, I mentioned him in, in my blog. And what is odd about that whole thing is that um, Ron was going to help Valet do the research on this or further the research on this. But um, he died in a very odd accident. Um, not just a few months after he told Valet mm-hmm. about it. <clears throat> and there, I mean, there's nothing suspicious about the accident. It's just a kind of an unusual accident. I think it was a hit and run. And um, so Valet had to do, ended up having to do a lot of the additional research himself. And so he did do that with some assistance <laughs> to construct more of a, a kind of um, context. And it was very clear um, as I was, and so the way the book is organized is a little different than the way most of his books are organized. Um, he lets the, the interviews that uh, Paola did. He lets them kind of stand separately and he provides some context for them. And then he um, explains a few extra things, you know, that comes up. And then he kind of just talks about various aspects of the interviews. <coughs> and the interviews are pretty straightforward, actually. Um, they're not exactly what you think. These kids were not abducted. They didn't actually have contact with the beings that they saw. Um, by the time they were, they refused, they refused hypnosis, especially initially. I think that eventually <coughs> Jose was um, hypnotized once in order to try to remember some details very specifically, but it was a very limited hypnosis and it wasn't, it was only, it was done by a professional. You know, it was done by someone who mm-hmm. was trained. It was not done by someone who does abduction stuff. So it was very limited in scope. Um, but other than that, you know, by the time they gave these interviews to Paola, the abduction narrative had been around for 15 years and they could very easily have changed their story or, or done something more interesting or complicated. <laughs> their story is actually pretty simple and mm-hmm. it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. And the, the memories of the two men don't agree exactly because they wouldn't 
They were both young boys yeah. when this happened, and they were different ages. One was older than the other. They were cousins. They remember slightly different things in, in slightly different order. <laughs> and why people think that that's proof of falsity is just bizarre, because that's the way memory is. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it doesn't mean nothing happened. In fact, it usually indicates something did happen. Mm-hmm. And the inter- and the other interesting thing, which a lot of people who criticize um, these accounts don't really talk about, is that pa- Paola was able to locate a third witness who um, was at least part of the time present in the days and months immediately afterwards, after these events had occurred and was able to corroborate certain aspects, including the existence of some physical objects Mm -hmm. and what happened to some of those physical objects. And um, so it's, it's in that sense, it's a different kind of, of ballet story. And he does something really different with the physical objects as well. He's not trying to demonstrate that these physical objects are extraterrestrial. <clears throat> He's trying to demonstrate that there is a different kind of significance to the possibility of physical objects. And that what the physical objects, it's not what they are. It's not what analysis may show them to be. In fact, the, the, the only physical object from this account that has survived is a kind of bracket. And he himself believed that it was a bracket that was probably left over by the uh, military guys who came to clean up the site where this craft or whatever it was, this avocado <laughs> fell out of the sky. <laughs> Um, with these praying mantis beings in it. Um, I thought the fact that they were insectoid was just completely fascinating. Um, that's that's mm-hmm. just not common, you know. Um, Certainly not at that not time. Not at that time. Um, and for, for, so Valet thought that it was a terrestrial object that had been left behind by... Um, the military and probably wasn't originally part of the craft at all because it looks like a farm thing. It just looks like a broken off bracket. (laughs) Yeah. But his assertion was argued by one of the scientists who actually did testing on it and said that this type of material, even though none of the metals in the alloy are unusual, the particular way in which they're put together, uh, the percentage uh, percentages of, of, of the different metals and how they're put together is very unusual, um, is it, would not be commonly used now and would probably not have been available at the time. So the question then is, well, and also according to the stories that the boys tell and that the cousin tells, there was an unusual amount of interest that the military showed to this bracket when they realized it was missing. 
And um, there was this really weird experience that a farmer who knew nothing, or sheep herder who knew nothing about any of this, <clears throat> a very strange experience he had when he slept in a shed on where this item had been buried to hide it. And um, he had this, these in the middle of the night, had a visitation by three beings who scared the crap out of him because they were, you know, pretty aggressively asking him where their property was. He had no idea what they and were talking about. Of course, he knows nothing. Yeah. yeah, he knows nothing about it. So for ballet, it's not a matter of whether this is an extraterrestrial object or not. It's this is an object that he thought was just a regular thing. But it turns out to have some kind of importance. But what that importance is, we don't know. It's like symbolic. It's like it's got a symbolic importance in addition to whatever physical importance it might have. Yeah, I <coughs> that's one of the things that stood out to me. Another another piece of information that he gives about the object is the measurements on it were metric system. Right. And at the time the US uh, military did not use the right. metric system in, in building their equipment. Um, so, you know, I was like, okay, so it's European, <laughs> you know, the Canadians are sending something after us or, or the French are, you yeah. know, that's well, what it was. And, no, and, nah, that's not what it well, was. See, but. I think what he's finally getting to, I mean, and he doesn't actually come to conclusions. What he does is he, <laughs> provides context, the stories, the weird evidence, the bizarre evidence that seems to make oh, no yeah. sense at all. Mm -hmm. And then he says, then he just asks a bunch of questions. Yeah. And the, the question that I think is probably the most prescient question is the question of, no, well, you know, we assume, you know, even thinking, even thinking about Roswell, we assume that these were accidents. What if, what if the crash was the message, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, um, you know, I, given, given then the rest of the stuff that was happening around me when I was reading <clears throat> the book, um, you know, the, because I started reading the Pueblo Revolt, which is a an account of this revolt that occurred um, back in the fifteen was it fifteen hundred sixteen hundreds in the seventeenth century. Yeah, it was sixteen eighty something. Yeah, sixteen eighty. It was between August 9th and the twelfth right. of that year. <laughs> so about the same time that the uh, that the the same time that the crash occurred. Or, uh, yeah, really close, very, very close, and and, and very, very close. close in time to when um, Nagasaki was was born. Mm -hmm. um, so what I do is I I noticed that as I was reading Trinity, and then I was reading this book about the Pueblo Revolt, I noticed that I noticed a similarity in the way in which. Um, the indigenous people who the author was consulting 
in order to try to come up with some answers about like who organized the revolt, <coughs> why were the Spanish able to march in and just take everything over 12 years later? You know, why didn't that coalition hang together? Um, all that kind of stuff. I noticed a similarity between the way in which indigenous people talk about, or at least at the time when that book was written, some of them have become a little bit more open now, um, but talked at the time about their villages or their pueblos participation in the revolt, which was a very unpleasant business. And the way in which um, Rime uh, Baca and Jose Padilla and their families refused to talk about this event. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there seemed to be this similarity in terms of there's something important and sacred here. And there's also, there's also something that is important in the sense that it has a kind of internal significance to the experiencer. Therefore, we can't really just simply talk about it. It's not something to be mm -hmm. sensationalized. It has some kind of meaning, but we don't know what it is yet. <coughs> One of the things that I, the sacredness, I think, is 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 central here. Um, another case that Valet uh, in, investigated is is from France, the very famous Valenciennes incident with the lavender farmer, which is a job I would love. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that would be great. <laughs> um, you know, Maurice Masse or, or Massa said, you know, he, he told Valet his experience. You know, he, he went out into his field and there were these two beings pulling some of his plants out and they had a weird egg-shaped contraption and one of them pointed a wand at him and he became uh, frozen you know he was he was paralyzed he couldn't move and he was terrified because this is just not what you expect to see in the 1950s in France it's just it's just not years later he spoke to Maurice again he was, he was in France. He visited him. And Maurice, you know, they talked about all kinds of things other than his experience. And then Maurice said, I can't tell you any more than what I've told you. I can't tell anyone else any more than what I've told any of you. Because there are some things you just don't tell that there are some things that are just for the person who witnessed it, the person who experienced it. There are things we do not tell. I thought that was very interesting. And as far as I know, yeah. that's in my experience, that's true. Um, I know there are things I haven't told and um, I wouldn't tell them publicly, you know, um, and interestingly, you know, the person that I, I interviewed 
on Tuesday, you know, near the end of, of the recording, he said, okay, um, it, now, now I'd like to tell you the things that I don't want everyone to know. There's, you can know, but I, I think it's important that you know, but I, I don't want to tell everybody else. And again, all I could think of was Maurice. And then I realized, wait a minute, I'm going to be recording with Wham about the, it's the same idea, right. that secrecy. There's a, there's an importance to your ability to keep secret, keep safe facts and experiences. And sometimes I think we keep them secret because we can't quite articulate in any way, shape, or form the magnitude of what we experienced. And sometimes it's just as well not to speak of it. Well, are you familiar with the case of Dorothy Izod? Yes. She, yes. If you've seen her documentary, she talks about that as well. Um, because she only recently died, by the way. She I know. Was, she, she was she, like old. She was really old when she died. Like really, really, yes. Um, and, no, and, and more needs to be known about her just generally, but <laughs> but she was, you know, she was encouraged by Heineck to not tell people some of what was going on because <laughs> he knew, he knew the vultures would descend <laughs> essentially. Yes. And he, he, I think at that point in his life, and I think this is, this is what's going on with Valet too. I think what Valet is recognizing, and I, I've noticed, I don't know about you, but I've noticed a change in his tone generally since his wife died. Yes. Um, which I don't think that's unusual. But um, I think that he has begun to recognize, as Heineck recognized, that there are there's something going on here that is more important and deeper than... Well, the best theories that the UFO UFOlogy has come up with, which aren't very good, <laughs> the theories, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and um, so for me, in reading it, it was really reading it, especially with the Pueblo Revolt. Um, and this is why I think Ballet also focuses a lot on what's on, on the proximity of all that to the 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 first atomic blasts um i don't are you familiar with uh david lynch's um twin peaks revisited no i haven't seen it um if you ever get a chance um especially episode eight episode eight is his kind of it's kind of his reveal um, his reveal of of this imaginative reveal of where the Twin Peaks universe, you know, the narrative came from, where Bob came from, you know, the, the demon Bob came from, what the Black Lodge is, 
what the purpose of Laura Palmer was. And it's all focused around the Trinity explosion. Yes, the Trinity uh. explosion. He uses um, this. It's like a ten-minute. It's a it's a gorgeous ten-minute animated montage, and he uses um, uh, the the music for it is a is a is a called. Uh, Threnody, it's Threnody, it's not a word that's used very much. Threnody of Hiroshima. It was written for the, for the victims of Hiroshima. And um, so he uses that as like the background um, music for this 10-minute meditation in which he, 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 he shows the explosion. You see the explosion. And as, <coughs> as and it's just all done with gorgeous animation, as the as the mushroom cloud is expanding outward, you're going into the cloud, into the cloud, into the cloud, into the cloud, into the subatomic particles, and actually seeing reality being ripped apart, ripped open. And and the the implication is is it was in that rupture, especially a rupture that was done for destructive purposes, that was done um, that had the intention of creating a weapon. Because for, um, for David Lynch, it, intention is everything. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people who do evil in his stories, but they, they get theirs. <laughs> he does have a kind of justice about it. They get theirs. Um, but um, basically, the reality is ripped open and it permits... It permits beings who are essentially parasitical. Um, they live in another reality, and it it permits them to enter, to to lay eggs, to spread seeds, to begin a process of colonization. Um, okay, I'm gonna have to watch that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and well, and it's done without words. I mean, you know, you, there are whole portions. <laughs> of episode eight where there's no dialogue or very little it's very it's david lynch you know i mean you either like him or you don't i thought it, it's one of the most compelling things i've seen in a long time especially television you know it's, it was on showtime but for me this is kind of similar to what um valet's getting at and what i was also mm-hmm. thinking of is that you know, it's it's this happens in a part of the country where the people who are the original inhabitants have had long exchange and knowledge and and histories of dealing with other worlds and other beings and yes. have their own stories about um, how reality can be ruptured under certain circumstances or. Uh, beings who end up in, in places where they shouldn't be, and in fact, I'm in right. fact I'm reading a, I'm getting ready to do a recording of <coughs> a great story out of this book. This book is called Hopi Stories of Witchcraft, Shamanism, and Magic, and oh, it was uh, that's a that's a winner. Uh, well, um, in the in the Pueblo Revolt book. Uh, there, he mentions there's this one anthropologist, a guy named Eckhart 
uh, Malotki, I think that's how you pronounce his last name. He's still alive, and he is apparent. He's written uh, two or three books of collections of Hopi. He's I, he's apparently the only Westerner who has mastered Hopi, <laughs> the language, and uh, <clears throat> so he can actually hear these stories in the language and then translate them himself. That's that's a very valuable <clears throat> and, um, thing. And then he always he always gives the translations back to the elders to make sure that he's doing it right. But there's the, I've got this book and then I've got another one of what are called the ruin tales. The Hopis have a, have a collection, kind of an oral collection of tales that are called ruin tales. And they are tales about the ruins of villages. You know, there are all kinds of pueblos and ruins. Um, and there are stories about what happened to those people and why are those ruins there and, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, but this particular, um, the reason I'm doing this story, it's called, uh, it's called um, the Soyoka Ogre and Wife. And it's a great story that has <laughs> Grandmother Spider in it. <coughs> One of my favorite depictions of her. It's got, it's got poop in it. It's got poop in it. It's got <laughs> sex in it. Sex that actually kills people in it. <laughs> um, it's like it's like not a kind of story that you would expect at all. It's got a lot of mm -hmm. humor, um, uh, a, a lot of irony. Uh, the I don't know what a Sayoko ogre is specifically, but it has some features that are similar to Bigfoot. I don't think it's a Bigfoot exactly, but <laughs> some it's got big feet <laughs> and it's kind of it's yeah. kind of hairy. Um, but anyway, um, all of these stories are about um, people moving in and out of different realities and encountering different mm -hmm. beings. Um, and <clears throat> so it does seem like at some point, Valet is sort of positing the possibility that this event occurred and not only did the event occur not only was the explosion but then it was used on people mm -hmm. um, and this was sort of a message from another place yeah um, so I realized I should probably look at the the second edition, which has more information. Yeah. Well, I, I, and it it actually does have a fair amount of new information, which I appreciated greatly. Yeah. I'm, I, I because haven't read he, it yet. I, I it was like I'd already written this review by the time, <laughs> you know, by the time the second edition came out, I was like, okay, I know it, it was within. It seemed like it was within days. Right. Um. So I, I I got a copy of it on Kindle and now I'm getting one on on paper so I can take notes in it and all of that. Um, you know, yeah, you can take notes in a Kindle book, but then you know Amazon might decide it doesn't belong to you anymore, right. and then you know you're out of it and you're screwed. So one of the things that is interesting in the new book is that they found another witness. Ah. And it was a witness to 
some of the physical uh, pieces mm -hmm. of the vehicle or whatever you want to call it, the, the big avocado. And it was the angel hair. Yes. And what's very interesting about this witness is the third witness, Sabrina, had remembered, wait, there was a cousin who was living with us. He was older than me. And he put that angel hair on his Christmas tree. And what's interesting is the, the, the witness, uh, what is his name? I have it written down. Faustino, which I thought was interesting. Um, Faustino had seen this bag of twinkly stuff in a storage shed, didn't know what it was, didn't know where it came from, just that it was in the storage shed and it was pretty. And they didn't have a lot of things to put on their Christmas tree. So he picked up the pretty stuff and put it in the Christmas tree. Valet questioned him very, very carefully without leading questions. But it was clear that no one in the family had seriously talked about the flying avocado that then fell out of the sky and burst into flame in connection with that material for a long time. And even so, when people who knew good and well where it came from saw it on the tree, they didn't say anything. So... That was extremely interesting. And, of course, the other thing that, was, that I thought was interesting was Valet talks about how many people were exposed to radiation in New Mexico at that time, which I have always <clears throat> had in the back of my oh, head. Yeah. But if you look at that, and if you look at the fact that this family, their extended family, many of them, the, the young people or the children at that time grew up and never had children because they couldn't, because they were, they were sterile. Most of them died very young of cancer. And this is true, you know, with pretty much everybody in that area, but you have a, a whole family. So you have a microcosm here, an indigenous family who essentially were wiped out. I mean, it was a little tiny familial genocide, and the government didn't care. And, and they all remember the government officials coming to talk with them over a period of years. Well, they were gathering data on, on, their, <coughs> on the cattle and on the, the people. You know, oh, hey, you know, your sister-in-law or your sister got married, and, you know, have they had kids yet? All of that. Yeah, that sounds really nice, doesn't it? Except you think about it, and it was just, they were data points. That's horrible. It, it's it's, it's and typical. And then, you know, uh, yes, it is typical. Especially for with indigenous people. It's yes. Yes. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm reading that, <coughs> and I'm thinking about, then I start thinking about cattle mutilations. Mm -hmm. And if you put them on a map and then you compare that map with downwinder sites, 
starts to look very, very familiar. And I know there are some cattle mutilations. I'm pretty sure that, that that's a government agency or someone using a mystery to kind of cover up the fact that they're checking on cow's lymph nodes to see, you know, what's going on. Is there still radiation? Is there, are there mutations? Blah, blah, blah. But some of them are genuinely weird. Oh, yeah. So if somebody built that, I think of it as the flying guacamole, the, the avocado-shaped thing, if a, an intelligence of some sort built it, then they are capable of dismantling a cow. Yeah. Or manifested it. <laughs> or manifesting. <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Interestingly, you know, the, the cuts look like they were done with a laser or some technology that we don't have. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. There's just so much in this book that just sort of jumps out and makes me think that, you know, while we have always had visitors or interactions with some non-human intelligence that there have always been weird flying things in the sky and strange lights and, and all of that. It is really, really interesting that after that event, after we dropped the bomb at Trinity, now it seems like it's ramped up and there are more people involved and they just keep showing up at nuclear sites, you know, turning on the the launch codes and then turning them off and disabling them. Something just does that. Yep. Well, it's like, um, I mean, I guess the way I would look, you know, I mean, we are not the only beings inhabiting this space. Uh-huh. And... Um, I mean, and I'm just talking about the space of the planet. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. it's pretty clear that, um, I mean, how else would beings from another reality let us know? Yeah. What would they, you know, what yeah. would they do? It is, it is very interesting. Another thing that I that jumped into my head there's a oh uh, and by the way by the way i'm assuming that you know and have already figured this out (laughs) that even in cattle mutilations there's a huge symbolic element in that yes yes so it's not just you know the mechanical um collecting of stuff to to figure out whether radioactivity is seeping into groundwater it's um you know, reproductive organs, reproductive organs. Uh, the fact that, you know, we are an incredibly beef oriented culture and we, tr- and, and, mm-hmm. and we treat these animals like terribly like Petri dishes, um, genetically mm-hmm. altered Petri dishes. So it's kind of like, um, there's, there is a lot of symbolic content in all of this. Uh, you know, yeah. you know, it's kind of like <laughs> you're looking, you're looking at the stuff and you're looking at yourself. You're looking at the society that you're in. You're looking at, mm-hmm. you're looking at, um, 
well, and then I, you know, I think about what I do in my everyday life as a result of, of all this stuff, as you know, because we've talked about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's a musical group called Material, and they, they do uh, a lot of ambient stuff. And they have some pieces, they, they have a whole album of work that they did with William S. Burroughs' poem cycle, uh, Seven Souls. Mm-hmm. And there's one part of it where he talks about nuclear weapons. And the first time I heard that song was actually the first time I had heard that part of that poem. And of course it's in the the poet's voice. So that's significant as well. And he calls the nuclear weapons soul killers because the EMP is something that disrupts energy. And he says that this is a means to not only kill the body, but you destroy souls with that weapon. Now, I can just see that being a case of, you know, creatures from the other side of, you know, our space here, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you know, if there are dimensions stacked upon each other and little veils in between, and then we just bust a hole in there. Well, yeah, I can see them having a a little bit of a problem with us having these kinds of weapons. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that Dorothy Izod says about, I can't remember now whether it's in the book or in the film, (laughs) excuse me, but she says um, that the energy that these beings use and the energies that they manifest are energies that are available to all of us. It's, it's the energy of life. It's the energy that is, is just present. And, um, but we we're it's almost like we're afraid of it or something, you know, or we've become so <coughs> focused on a certain set of manifestations or expressions of it that we forget that we're part of all of this. And yeah. um, at some point, she doesn't really issue a warning exactly, but she does talk about how um, she does talk about how there are consequences um, to ignoring uh, the life that is around you and the beings that are around you. <coughs> and that we're going to be, you know, we are reaping the results of that. We're seeing the results of that. Um, and it, it, it's, and, and then in the Seth material, <coughs> excuse me, in the Seth material, I can't, and again, I can't remember exactly what book, but I do think it's, it's either nature, personal reality, or the individual, the nature of mass events. 
he makes the statement that if, if human beings really valued consciousness and understood it, we would not be splitting atoms. Or yeah. if we split them, we'd be doing it differently with a different intention. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because um, he insists that atoms are conscious. There's a consciousness there. And that even those, you know, components, if you want to call them that, they're actually, you know, energy relationships. But even those components um, are composed of something that he calls consciousness units. Um, and it's, you know, he doesn't talk it. He says the reason why you think in terms of like small and big and, and is because of your focus here. <laughs> Size is irrelevant. <laughs> Has, it, oh, you yeah. know, it makes no difference. <laughs> and he further on, furthermore, he says the only reason why you think of space as being out there is because that is an artifact of your focus. There is, in fact, no outer space. We are in whatever space is. It's not out there. We're in it. And distance is an artifact. It's not that it's not real here. You know, I have to get in my car and go to my friends. It's not that it's not real here, but it's not really real. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> the entire idea of, of time also. Exactly. You know, it's not, it's not a line. It's sort of like a spiral, well, it's, yeah. like, like a, a, an old record album with the lines that, you know, spiral. It's how I see it anyway. And you can kind of, there's, there's enough strange stories that I think that sometimes we can move sideways. Well, and, well, I, back and forth yeah. and it's so so interesting well, the, it, but yeah, yes the, it, the, it, I, seth seth says and i i accept this actually quite literally <coughs> that um and i've had experiences to this effect that um all time is simultaneous um, yeah and yeah. um there are, are patterns that are unique to each one of us and then sort of certain groups and but what we think of as past, present, and future is all happening at once. And, and all then one. all probabilities of each one of those are happening all the time and are constantly being generated. I think that's the thing that, you know, some people are like, well, that means everything is determined. It's like, no, it's being generated right now all the time. So it's it's endless. It's endless and infinite. Yeah. Um, and, and you're making choices about how you're moving through it. I mean, that's that's the difference um but that doesn't mean that there aren't entities other realities um especially that are connected to this place this place that we call the earth this consciousness we call the earth and that they would not that and that they would have opinions yeah yeah um i think that about us and our doings then some of our dumb ideas and childish a lot of our ideas um, are childish yeah yeah we're we're very aggressive I, and and yeah i think of that as kind of a an immature response and 
you know, we're getting better. Well, we're some not of totally us, horrible. Yes. Well, it's never everybody all at right. once. You can't, it just doesn't, it just doesn't happen. <laughs> you always have people going at different rates yep. and, and getting better at different rates. And it's, to me, it's utterly fascinating. That's why I like history. I like to watch the patterns of it and, and see the, the places where, yes, it does seem like it was this thing happened, this thing happened, and this thing happened. But if you look at it as things happening simultaneously in different places, then you start to get the idea of the complexity that time actually well, is. That's, and that's part of the reason why I talked about the synchronicities um, mm -hmm. between, um, uh, between the Pueblo Revolt and the time period in which um, these events, the Bacavidia case, occurred. Um, so, for example... The advent of the Pueblo Revolt and the bombing of Nagasaki occurred 265 years apart, almost to the day. And that's so immense to think of that. Yeah. And and people who don't feel those connections, well, that's just a coincidence. I don't, oh, that irritates me. Well, it's not a coincidence when, I, you, when you actually pay attention to the Baca Vidya story. Yes. <coughs> yes. And when you actually know the significance of the Pueblo Revolt. And the significance of that place, mm -hmm. the sacredness of the place where that all happened. Right. And, well, another thing that, that irritated me when, when the book first came out or when it was about to come out and didn't quite, you know, make it out, it had, it had a different title and all of this. Um, was people were saying that, well, it's two kids. You know, the story is based upon the, the stories of two kids. One was seven, the other was nine. You know, do you trust a, a kid to give an accurate detail? I mean, they, kids are imaginative, blah, you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and, and Valet has never really, you know, grabbed onto a story from a kid and I was like, dude, y'all, Juan Perez. Hello. In Argentina. I was like, if you take the two stories and you take them apart like a folklorist would and look at the motifs, they're almost the same story. And so Juan Perez was 12, so he's the oldest of all of the the witnesses, of the child witnesses, but he is a child. He lives on a ranch. They were farmer's children who lived on a ranch. He was sent out by his father to gather the horses. They were out counting the cows. Hmm. We're starting to, you know, th th these things are very similar. Um... There was a corroborating witness or two or several in both cases because, you know, now they've found more corroborating evidence for the Baca Padilla case. And they had sort of mystical experiences with a seemingly downed craft of some sort. And... It affected Juan Perez very, very badly. Oh, yeah. Screwed him right up. 
And it's one of the times when when uh, Dr. Valet said he was very happy that Janine was with him. That was his wife because she was a child psychologist and she could be helpful in that way because when they spoke to the to Juan he was still young and still terrified um he had tied his horse to the ladder that went up into the object that he encountered and it had touched the horse the horse had touched the object and the horse died very soon thereafter um that would upset anybody, but also interestingly, he encountered his grandfather inside the object. Now, if you, if anybody hasn't seen Witness of Another World, you should watch it <clears throat> because it is very, very interesting, and it has a really it has very salient points that I think kind of uh, can kind of point us in the direction as to where we should go to not solve the UFO mystery, but understand some of its deeper meanings. Because as an adult, he basically was a hermit. He had, he had contact with his mother, and that was pretty much it. And then all of his animals. And he was afraid when he was around people. Well, he ended up going to some of his mother's people who were indigenous and they had shamanic uh, traditions, and they had medicine people, and they said that what he had had was an initiatory experience, and they could help him finish that experience. It was started, but then there was nobody to help him continue it. And so they said, you know, your grandfather, your ancestor was there to start the process, to help guide you but we understand what happened to you. And so he finishes the experience of initiation with these people and he becomes much better. He becomes much more at ease. He isn't traumatized anymore because that process that was started years and years before can be finished. What this says to me <coughs> is that at least in some UFO encounters, what we are encountering is something sacred. And again, it kind of comes back around to their sacredness and their secrecy. Right. Well, and that's part of, you know, towards the, <clears throat> the end of the first part of this blog. That's getting back to what, you know, what, the, what Valet asks in Trinity, what if the crash of the object at San Antonio was not an accident? Mm -hmm. um, what if the crash and the distressed creatures from the craft were the message I think the thing that most struck me about <clears throat> the, the Baca and Padilla um, testimony about the entities were their cries of distress yes to me that is a very um, I don't know because it, the, those cries of distress were so marked that when they were recounting the story later on as adults, it still really affected them. Yes. Um, and so this is what, I, this is what I write in the blog. <laughs> what would the message be? And my question is, 
What could possibly be distressing, insectoid-like creatures who had seemingly crashed to Earth not long after a matter-altering bomb was exploded, then used on two cities, close to both the location and the anniversary of one of the most successful if bloody revolts against a colonial invader in indigenous North American history? That's my question. Mm-hmm. And it's a good question. You know. And it's an extremely salient question because the cries of the, the two uh, of the occupants were terrifying, but at the same time, the boys wanted to help. Right. And, and they got messages in their heads. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They wanted to, to somehow <laughs> help them. And I think it, it was, it was the younger one who was like, we have to help them. We have to help them. And the older one being just enough older, it's like, it's on fire. We, we can't, we'll get, you know, he's like, if, you know, the younger one gets hurt and then I'm going to be in trouble. And he's like, we can't quite, we can't, but he wanted to as well. He's very clear about, you know, it was, it pulled on his empathy. It pulled on both of their empathy. So that's another thing that's, that happens there. They see this, this horrible accident and fire and these, these beings are crying out in pain and anguish and they want to help. Whereas, um, I mean, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, I know the first time I saw any of the photographs or the films of that devastation, my first instinct was there is no excuse for that. That, I and I was a child, you know, so I, I looked at it and said, No, it's a book by Charles Pellegrino called To Hell and Back, and it is a minute by minute, second by second, nanosecond by nanosecond account of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, taken from two sources. Or t- several sources, but what he, what what inspired him to write this book was um, Charles Pellegrino, who's a science writer, had lo- lost I don't know several family members in 9/11, and in the um, I don't know it was like the one or two year anniversary of it, one of the people who was chosen to speak was a survivor of both Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He had survived both. He had been visiting Hiroshima and when the bomb went off and survived and went home just in time to experience Nagasaki. (laughs) And there are literally a handful of these people that survived both. And um, this man... (coughs) did a very moving speech and um, you know, Charles Pellegrino's family was consumed with grief because they'd lost several family members. And um, he was so taken by this man that he came to know him and came to know the community of people that have still, that have survived Um, because in Japan, they, they are distinct population. They have a particular legal status. It's not a good legal status. Um, no. and, um, 
but what he's done is he's he went back and he he looked at he collected many of those accounts of survivors but as especially the ones who survived both but and then he <laughs> actually looked at the scientific evidence about what was actually found at both sites especially in the immediate hours and days afterwards, you know, from people who survived, who were there, who saw it. And then he also, um, using uh, what, what we know, uh, what scientific material we know, um, he, he, he gives you literally a, a nanosecond by nanosecond account of what actually happens when an atomic blast occurs in terms of like what, what energy is released, when, how. I mean, basically, he's giving you the schematic of, of, of rupturing reality. And then, what, and then what that does to bodies, what that does to, to buildings, what that does. And it, it's, it's torturous to read. But it's, to me, it's like, um, what's interesting is that he just he just presents the evidence. Lots of people had really weird experiences. I mean, they would have weird experiences anyway, because this was an unprecedented event. <coughs> so they right. would. But even given that, there are a lot of really strange experiences that people had um, in the days following it. Physical experiences, uh, physical things that were witnessed by multiple witnesses. Like there were um, uh, I can't. He, there was this in both Nagasaki and Hiroshima. There were these what appeared to be semi-solid, glowing orbs that would just move through the through the ruins. And, oh, and I mean, oh it boy. was. I mean, it was really. There's some weird stuff in there. Um, and he just reports it because you know we don't know what was causing it, you know, was a physical effect, something else, you know, um, there's no way to measure it. But the point is, is that there was, there was weird stuff that happened and, <laughs> and lots of people, he was able to collect a few accounts of people having precognitive events. They knew that something was going to happen and they survived it. Um, or people that remembered that other people said something precognitively and didn't, you know, so th th he doesn't intend it to be a book of paranormal experiences and it's not, but he just includes that data. He doesn't, <laughs> weed, he doesn't it out. weed it out. And I would encourage people to read it because, you know, A lot of people tend to think of nuclear weapons, atomic weapons or nuclear weapons, as just sort of this other type of weapon that we have. This is not a different type of weapon. This is a very specific kind of weapon that does a very specific thing to reality and to people and to flesh and to buildings. And it is, it's, you know, there, there's no way, I mean, our, we do have smaller bombs now, whatever that means. But there's, there's no way, there's no way <laughs> that you can make this a small thing. No. And 
No. Um, and the other thing that I, and this is just for listeners, you know, if you want to sort of connect to other aspects of this, as I was reading um, Trinity, I was also reminded of a couple of other things. Um, I was reminded of, I don't know if you're familiar with this, um, Peter Reich, he was Wilhelm Reich's son. He mm-hmm. wrote a book called The Book of Dreams, and it's his autobiography of himself and him remembering his father. And you find out a few things about his father that a lot of people didn't know. His father was obsessed with UFOs and mm-hmm. believed that um, UFOs were actually from another reality, that they were not mm. <laughs> that they were not extraterrestrial. And that they had been released by the bomb. And that his organ thing was his attempt to actually try to fix what the atomic bomb had blasted. Knit it together again. That was his attempt. Um, And, of course, this book, this book, uh, A Book of Dreams... um, was what inspired Kate Bush. Yeah, I was going to have to say, <laughs> if you didn't say that that was the basis of cloud yeah, busting, it, yeah, it, I'd, it, I'd have to say yeah. that. <laughs> inspired Kate Bush, but it also inspired, this book also inspired a fascinating um, um, song poem by Patti Smith called Birdland, um, in which she actually, um, in her imagination, um becomes Peter Reich and um, and 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 the long black funeral cars that come to pick up his father when his father died become a UF become UFOs and he meets his father and finds out that his father is an extraterrestrial. It's a it's a fascinating poem. Um, and the way that I'll she have prefer- to find and, it. you know you can you can get it on YouTube. It's on the um the album radio, uh, no, no, um, horses. <coughs> but that was also inspired by Book of Dreams. And it's got this very blatant kind of UFO abduction contact story in it. That's where, where she finds out that where he finds out that his father is an extraterrestrial. <coughs> so anyway, um, that's, and see, you didn't know that my husband and I are writing a novel. Oh, I don't. With uh, Orgone and William Reich. I didn't. His ideas. Yeah, it's it's all mixed in there. Well, then you should definitely, it's called Birdland. You okay. should definitely at least read and listen to Birdland. <laughs> I will definitely do um, that. But this is also part of the reason why I... In the third part of this blog, why I talk about more personal experiences for myself. Um, not because I think I'm so wonderful or anything, but because as I was reading both these books, all my, my own memories about experiences that I've had in these locations with some of these materials and with some of some indigenous people, uh, you know, friends and former friends, I say that because a couple of people that I know have died 
um, from these areas. Um, just sort of what that all means for me, you know, how it has impacted me personally. Um, <clears throat> and um, I mean, this kind of cross indexes with an interview that I did with Stephanie Quick, which I which I reference in the blog because I didn't want to go all into that experience. It's probably the single most important experience I've had in my life. And, um, you know, talking about secrecy, it's one of those experiences that yeah, I can talk about, but it doesn't really tell you what happened. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the experience I had with the rainbow and the raven at Canyon de Chez. Which is a beautiful, beautiful experience. <laughs> I, I can tell you about it, but I can't tell you what happened. I right. can tell you about the sequence of events, but I cannot tell you what happened to me because I don't, I don't even really entirely know. There are things that you can't put into Except words. That it changed me. Yes. Yes. Well, give a, a short description of, <laughs> of the sequence so the listeners, because I know what you said, but th they should. I mean, yeah, I'm going to make them read your blog, too, but <laughs> yeah, I'm going to send them there. Well, I but. was visiting Canyon de Chez. <clears throat> In fact, after this, I was trying to remember what year was it? I think it was like 84, 85, I think. It was in the mid-80s. Um. And, and of course, Canyon de Chez is in Arizona, not New Mexico, but, you know, it's in Dinata, which is, you know, the Navajo Nation, and they don't recognize New Mexico and Arizona, not really, because their nation straddles the state line. Um, and it was like, I think it was the last, as I'm looking at my blog here, it was the last evening of our stay. Um, I decided to take a drive by myself along the North Rim Road. Um, um, at the time, and I mentioned this, the road came close to a place where a little over a dozen Diné individuals had thrown themselves over the edge of a cliff of the canyon rim rather than be taken and removed by the Spanish. <coughs> but I don't know whether that place is still available in the same way because I've noticed that they've changed um, what you can access. I got on the website and I've noticed that they've changed what you can access and what you can't. So it might be that they have made this part of the canyon an inaccessible out of respect, which is fine. But basically what I did was I, I wanted to just sort of experience the canyon. And so I went at sunset and I pulled off, got out of the car, went to a place off trail, fairly close to the rim. And um, I, I was, I could see the canyon um, off to my right. And behind me, there's, there's a, there's like a mesa. It's called, it was called Black Mesa at the time. And um, it's one of the sacred mesas of Dinatah. And the sun was just beginning to set or coming towards the mesa. And then on my left, 
was uh, on a Zazi ruin that you could see from where I was seated. <coughs> and across the canyon, not directly across, but a little bit of an angle, um, there was a, on the other rim, there was a thunderstorm or a thunder shower. It wasn't like a you know, really bad thunderstorm, but a thunder shower. But what I remember was sitting down and this was evening and it was in the desert and it was completely silent. There were no birds. There were, there were no insects. It was just completely silent except for the, a little bit of wind and you could hear the thunder across the way. And it was a silence that like pressed into you. And I was really aware that there would be some people that I knew that would not be comfortable with this silence. And I, and I, I felt like I felt presences in the silence. I can't really ex express it any better than that. It's kind of like, you know how you feel when you realize somebody's in the room with you. Mm -hmm. You can just tell that somebody's there. And that's how it felt, except it felt like there was a lot of folks there. And they were completely kind of around me, surrounding me, like pressing in. It wasn't unpleasant. <laughs> it was a little scary. Um, but I just decided to kind of relax and just let whatever it was in. And I could feel like intelligences. And I felt like I was being examined, really. Um, and, you know, I had, my, I had my eyes closed. I didn't realize I had my eyes closed until the fullness of the experience. But <clears throat> I felt myself, I just felt my, the boundaries of my body just sort of dissolve. And I felt like this sense of, of consciousness, like I, like I just, my consciousness and all these consciousnesses together and the sense of just being in this place, this kind of oneness, I guess you would call it. Um, and I was given information. Um, some of which comes up every now and then. A lot of the information that I was given was information about how to do certain things. And I don't mean like technology things. I mean like how to do certain types of exercises, certain types of breathing. Or, you know what I mean? It was that kind mm -hmm. of information. <clears throat> and then right in the middle of this communication, I got a message. It was just, it was just, it wasn't a voice. It was just like a thought. And I was told to open my eyes. And so I opened my eyes and right as I opened my eyes, I mean, literally right as I opened my eyes, as the sun was, you know, setting a beam of light from the sunset struck the, the storm. And as it struck the storm, this rainbow arced across the canyon towards me, but at an angle so that I could see it, you know, but towards my position. And at exactly the same time it happened, it was like literally exactly the same time, a raven flew underneath the arc of the rainbow, cawing, you know, calling the way they do. And it just, it was just 
It just happened. And then the sun slipped below the rim and it winked out. That, that's beautiful. And it, I can't, I can't explain. I mean, I can tell you what I saw, but to, to be present for it. And I was very clear that it was a gift. It was a response. Because if I hadn't opened my eyes right then, following that directive, I would have missed it. It only mm-hmm. lasted five or five or ten seconds. So um, I couldn't really, I didn't tell my partner at the time about it. And I couldn't, and I had trouble talking, actually, just even talking for several days after that. Because words were insufficient to express mm-hmm. what had happened. And um, so that's just <laughs> that experience, you know. But I <laughs> I do have a weird connection to to the place, uh, to, to this land. Um, let me see here. I'm trying to remind myself what I actually wrote about. There is one experience here that I did not write about. Oh, here it is. I did write about it. Um, My relationship with the Blackfoot woman, um, where I awoke from a vivid dream in which I recognized as what we call a past life memory in which Mm -hmm. she had been a Navajo Diné sorcerer who had murdered a young Hopi boy as part of an initiation ceremony. Yeah. That was a very interesting experience because, as I say in the blog, when I told her about it, she just looked right at me. And her clan, I mean, there's a whole backstory to her. And it's a tragic, one of those tragic stories of um, when the agents would come and take kids away from the from yeah. the reservations she was one of those kids and um for a variety of reasons she was never able to return but her family she was um uh, a kind of a branch of a very important spiritual family in the black in the blackfoot nation um, and so even as a child had been given a lot of different types of information <laughs> about, you know, ways to do certain types of offerings and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but I, I will never forget when I told her that dream because the dream kind of freaked me out. She just looked right at me and she said, I know. That's why I've had difficulty in this life. She knew. She, like, she had remembered that whole, you know. And, and she had, had a really crappy life. I mean, like, let's talk about, you know, karmic <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but she had sort of accepted it because what can you do? You've got to go through that, you know, in her, in her, you know, in her formulation of it. <laughs> so anyway, you know, so when people talk about skinwalkers, it's like, uh, you know what? You really don't know that much about what's going on there. <laughs> you know, yeah, there's, there are awful things that are happening there. But in the first place, if you really understood this, you wouldn't be talking about it. 
Yes, yes, yes. Skinwalkers. Uh, uh, most of what most people, most Anglo people know about it came from TV. Right. And, uh, yeah. It's, yeah. So anyway, you know, I felt like I had to talk a little bit about my own experiences, which I don't usually, um, because I felt like it was kind of one of those full disclosure moments, you know? Yeah. Um, the reason this is impacting me is because I've had these experiences in these places. Right. And I've had this yeah. interaction with this being that is considered one of the most important beings by the people who live there. And I didn't ask for that experience. It came to me. And it has been acknowledged as a real experience, although no one, no one can tell me why I had it. <coughs> so, um, but anyway, um, so for me, these experiences are, are very, and these stories are very, very, are very personal and significant. And you keep secret some things. Oh, just as I, I, oh, uh, yeah. Remy and Jose and Sabrina and Maurice and Juan <laughs> Perez, all everybody keeps something. The tribal secret. elders they keep secret. Yeah. Mm hmm. <laughs> well, it's 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 also an occult rule. Yeah. To know, to will, to dare, to keep silent. Yes. Because there's a certain yes. kind of power and energy that you mm -hmm. need in order to keep, you know, that's why this, this emphasis in our culture on, you know, destroying privacy and, uh, um, you know, well, even just making stuff up in order to have some kind of a story. I mean, well, I mean yeah. what people don't understand is that that creates realities. I uh, yeah, sure does. <laughs> you know, that's part of my novel I'm working on too. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's it's but, kind of like I think of Twitter wars as kind of like really really poorly poorly thought out spell work. <clears throat> <laughs> you know, kind well it it, it kind of is really. I mean, I'm laughing, but I know what you mean. That it's yeah, I mean. People don't understand that language is powerful. Right. You only say what you mean. Um, you certainly only write down what you mean. Um, and you, you, t you say the truth as, as much, much as you can. As you can. As much as you can. Yeah. I mean, you. There are, you know, some people would say secret keeping is is you know lying by omission, but. It's not the same thing. Well, and there's just some things that some people just don't need to know right this instant. Well, right. And, and intention matters in that regard. Very much. That is true. And I, you know, I, I feel kind of weird. We're talking about secrets and, you know, there's somebody who thinks that they can, you know. Oh. <laughs> declassify things with his mind. Yeah. 
And well, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that you know that he his his father was a big believer in Norman Vincent Peale, right? I mean, you know that. You didn't know that? I didn't think about yeah. that. But yeah, I did know that in like in the back of my head. So he 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 he, you know, he's kind of worked that positive thinking stuff. And that's what he uses. You know, um and uh he uses it in, you know, I mean, obviously really negative ways because he's only being positive about himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, oh, yeah. Um, you know, he believes in a certain kind of mental power. That's why he's been able to get that, away with some of the stuff that he has. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny because I, I, I mentioned that, <laughs> that, and I was, you know, I did it in a flippant, smart, ale- smart alecky way, but, um, you know, people were like, oh, he's just setting up for a, a insanity plea. And I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> I, it, that doesn't seem like a thing that he would come up with, like, for that. No. I was like, you know, maybe he doesn't actually believe. Maybe he's being cynical and he's just giving a story out to his followers. But I can also see that he might think that's how it works. Which is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but now that you mentioned the power, power of positive thinking, I'm like, oh, I hadn't even pieced those two little thought fragments together. And now that you've done it, I'm ruined forever. <laughs> now, now I'm going to be wandering around thinking about it. Well, it, you know, I mean, here's the thing. If it works for a bozo like him, <laughs> it's got to be it's got to work at least a little bit better for people who are more focused and and have better intentions. Yeah. Yeah, that is a good way to look to turn it around and and look at it that way. Because yeah, it, he has been in his way successful at just about everything and and having no consequences for it. I know that eventually it'll catch up to him, but Yeah, eventually you'll you run uh, out of capital. Yeah. Well, yeah. if nothing else, you just die. <laughs> you, just, you just, you know, your body, you just, you just die. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I don't, you know, I don't want to know, like, what about his soul or, you know, like, what, <laughs> like, what is he? At? Ain't nobody need to be digging into that. It's, nobody living yeah it's like it's like it, it's I mean, like this is your this is your bailiwick di- dude you know this is not this is not <laughs> this is shit you built <laughs> <laughs> i am not touching it Mm-mm. yep nope, nope, nope. i can't even imagine being a therapist for him even if he would go you know just the th- <laughs> <laughs> oh he wouldn't be he, you know he, oh he'd never go there's nothing wrong with him but yeah it, I'm very therapy positive, but, uh, whew. yeah, I can't imagine, you know, him making somebody making an appointment for him and the therapist not going, oh, oh, well, um, I'm really full up right now. <laughs> Tell the truth as much as you can. Oh, yeah. I have a lot of clients because <laughs> that would be, that's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. So are there any questions that you want to ask me about this stuff? Well, you know, I'm nosy as anything, (laughs) but 
I am. I'm terrible. I admit it. I'm nosy. Um, if Morgana was here, she'd she'd elaborate upon that to oh, excess. You mean your, your but nosiness, you mean? my nosiness, yes. <laughs> um, but I, you know, what kind of when we think of secrets, I think because right now we have this this top secret document thing happening, you know, and that's a big, big thing. And it just makes me think of secrets in, in personal lives in addition to uh, the big secrets, like on a national, international scale. And then you think about the secrets about UFOs no. that our government supposedly has somewhere and that's one of the things that i thought was interesting that that valet put in the second edition okay. is he base he basically lays out that the normal secretive parts of government probably do not have the secrets You're right um He's almost certain. I mean, he pretty much says, nope, it's something more important and higher than the secrets of the Manhattan Project. <clears throat> and he does talk about Wilbert Smith, the Canadian Good. Uh, investigator. Good. Uh, he talks about him at length. I, I remembered reading where, you know, why didn't he talk about Wilbert Smith and then, and, and, but he does okay, good, in good. this one. So, Maybe he heard you psychically. He knew. Um, well, then I'll have to write, like, but, edit, do an addendum on this. So, yeah. <coughs> yeah. It's good because that's actually a really important case. And I had just, and yes, I had just, I had just recently reread that case mm -hmm. when I read about, when I read Trinity. And I was like, oh my God, that case has stuff in it that, would fit into this. I mean, there's no, there, there's no, there's no, there's no entity as such, but, but he, the guy did stick his head up in the, or in the craft. And the physical evidence is his burning is him being injured. Yeah. And then whatever that weird stuff was that they found at the site later on. Right. Yeah, the the silver isn't it, it the silvery? It's a kind, some kind of a silver alloy. Silver alloy, yeah, in the cracks of the rock. <laughs> yeah, because that's a thing that somebody's gonna do just as a thing. It doesn't seem like it would be a thing. I would. Oh, do. it just—it's just weird. It's like, why? <laughs> you know, what could that possibly be about? But anyway, good. I'm glad he talks about it because that's a really important case. Yeah, and he, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm basically saying if you haven't bought Trinity yet, go ahead and get the second edition. Yeah. Um, because it is definitely worth it. And the other thing I noticed in reading the second edition is something that did not jump out at me uh, when I was reading the first edition. But uh, he meets with Roy uh, in the Owl Cafe. Okay. And I was like owls again 
owls, Barbara, owls. Owls. <laughs> I didn't catch it the first time, probably because I was just excited to be reading it. So I was, <coughs> you know, tearing through it at top speed. Yeah. Well, see, well, see but, part of the reason why I've talked about David Lynch and part of the reason why I've talked about Kate Bush and Patty <laughs> is that, <clears throat> and even Seth stuff, is that there is there is a creative, whatever this intelligence is or intelligences are, there is a creative element to it. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes artists pick up on that. They pick up on these things before scientists do, before um, even culture does. And, mm-hmm. um, and so I've always sort of paid attention to that. I have always thought that you know, pop music, for example, is not all of it, obviously, but that there are times when some of that stuff is significant in, in what it encodes and, and what it speaks about. And um, because it's, 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 I think that the, I think that the secret, I mean, this is speculation, but I think the secret the secret, the secret that is really being sat on is that somebody somewhere has figured out that if regular everyday people knew what the nature of reality really was, governments would be shot. I mean, and, and, I don't, and I don't mean physically, you know, in other words, everybody would be like, oh, we can do this. Then what, what, why what, do we need what, you what, fools? What do we need all this? Would it, be, <laughs> it would collapse religion. It would collapse yeah. economic systems. <clears throat> and it has nothing to do with extraterrestrial stuff. It has to do with understanding the nature of reality itself and understanding our part in it, our participation in it. That, as T- Dorothy Izod puts it, that this power, this light, is available to all of us, all the time, and that that that's the message. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's deceptively simple. That message. Well, of course, the the best stuff is you know. You know? <laughs> Again, that's why you tell the truth. The truth is simple. You don't have to remember what you said if you tell the truth. Right. Right. I mean, I, I, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, um, and and if you can't, for some reason, feel like you can tell the truth, um, you're going to have to be willing to live with the story that you weave. Yeah. Keep track of it. Mm-hmm. Um, because eventually it'll get away from you. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Especially if you, you know, make it bigger and bigger. Because eventually you have to because it, even that stuff has got a momentum. Yeah. Yeah. You know. It's true. Because, it, you know, lies can be creative processes. Um and and I'm just, of course, thinking about 
David Lynch in the Black Lodge and the White Lodge. And right. <laughs> you know, the, li the lies that, uh, well, and you haven't seen the revisit, so you don't know about the, um, the doppelganger Cooper, the, Co the, Co the Cooper from the Black Lodge, which I tell you. I'll have to watch it now. <laughs> I and will. I, I will say, I just will. <clears throat> episode eight is the pivotal. It, um, episode six. I always warn people about episode six. Episode six has two instances. I don't know why he put it in one episode, except that they have to they they have to be linked somehow. I just haven't quite figured out what the link is. But episode episode six has two of the most graphic instances of violence that I've ever seen anywhere any that Lynch has ever done. They're both so graphic. I okay. can't watch them. I watched them once and it was like, now I know they're coming. So I stand up and walk out. I just, it's too much yeah. to deal with. <coughs> Fast forward. Yeah. <laughs> Not looking. Um, but I mean, it's kind of like, you kind of have to see it the first time in order to understand the significance of what's going on there. And in the second one, he does, you can see where Quentin Tarantino has gotten some of his weird stuff because there's this um, weird juxtaposition of really terrible violence and then humor right afterwards, which makes you go, <laughs> God, <coughs> you know, it reminds me very much. I don't know if you saw Mulholland Drive, which is one of my favorite films, but there's this, that non sequitur scene where that guy is shooting that person yeah. it ends up having to shoot all these other people because the bullets keep going <laughs> to other rooms. And, and of course yeah. it's not necessarily linked to anything else, but it turns into this like yeah. bizarre, um, <laughs> this bizarre sequence right in the middle of the film. <laughs> yeah. And so it's kind of like that. It's like one of those. Um, yeah, but it is, I do warn people. Um, episode and he doesn't do that again. It's like in this. Oh, it's well, like that's in this good. One episode. Well, I guess there is a section in episode eight that's a little gross, but it's just not as gross. Okay. <clears throat> so definitely won't watch it with Zach. He doesn't like yeah. violence and stuff like that. Um, but no, very very well, much worth it. And 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 you well, will find that it is salient to what we are. I yeah, it sounds like it, which is why I'm gonna have to go and watch it now. Um, is there anything else you want to bring up, throw out? Um, well, the only other thing that I would I would say is that, and you know this, is that um, my Lovecraftian collection of short stories has has come out on Audible, and uh, um, it's available. And uh, the guy who did the narration is really, really good. In fact, when I was listening to them, you know, to, to okay the audio, I was like, I wrote these? I wrote this? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I can't believe I wrote this. Um, it's it, it, Dang, that sounds it's, good. <laughs> it's different than um, uh, the, the, the Hudson Valley Paranormal book. It's obviously fiction. Um, what's important mm -hmm. about, for our discussion here, what's important about this book for me 
is that these four stories emerged in one month um, out of a, uh, as a result of a vision quest that I went on. And um, they just started coming out. <laughs> and and um, uh, they are, and, and they were attended by, several of them were attended by sort of odd coincidences, uh, odd synchronicities. Oh, interesting. Uh, where I was clearly getting information from other places that I have no idea where, how. Um, one of them is based on kind of a, well, it's based on the emotional impact, not the actual physical events, but the, uh, the emotional impact of me having known Bob Bella, the serial killer, which I've talked about in other places. Um, and each story is, is different, has its different style, a different narrator. Um, one of the stories is, was actually a dream. I dreamt it pretty much oh, wow. exactly how it, I mean, I had to figure out how to write it down, <laughs> but it's pretty much yeah. the dream as I had it. Um, and, and I talk about that in the intro, you know, I kind of introduce each little, there's a short intro that I, where each story is introduced, but it only takes about, I don't know, three or four hours to listen to the whole thing. It's short. And, um, nice. and I call it Lovecraftian because there are elements of Lovecraft stuff in each. And because at the time when the book, when the book came out, I was also, uh, in the process of doing research for a, um, my last academic article that I ever wrote, which was on Lovecraft. Um, uh, on uh, uh, Lovecraft and the futility of divination or something like that. Um, because uh, if you go through Lovecraft, of course, he thinks that divination is stupid. It's not that it doesn't work. It's just that it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't make it so you can change anything. Right. So why the hell are you right. doing it? it? Doesn't, it <laughs> You're still going to go crazy and die at the end or get eaten by something. Right, exactly. So there it's you like, go. Yeah, you, you can... You can, you can <laughs> You can tell the future maybe, but you know, the cosmos does not care. So, <laughs> yeah. so, yeah. so I had been in the process of, of doing the research to write this article. So th I think that's why, that's, so I think that's why Lovecraft was in, in my there. brain. Cause I don't, you know, I mean, I like Lovecraft, but I'm not like a huge fan of him all the time. I mean, I like some of his ideas and some of his stories, <laughs> but, um, but the book is available on audible. It's called final season. A Lovecraftian quartet. Nice. And then the name on the on the book is Wahaba Hadia Almuid. It's I wrote it initially under my Sufi pseudonym, um, and 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 that's how it's been on an ebook as an ebook. It's been available um, as, as an ebook for since 2017. It actually won an award from Indie Reader as one of the best of 2017. Nice. So um, considering it was my first foray into fiction, I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> that is you good. Know, I don't, All right. If you, are you writing any more fiction? I've, I've written, <laughs> let's see. I've written a couple of short stories. I like short stories. 
<laughs> I do have an idea for a novel, but I know I won't write it. I feel like I should tell someone about it and then help them write it. But I don't know that I want to because it just seems too daunting for me, although the idea is great. And actually, the idea for it comes out of a series of dreams that I had. Yeah. So I, you know, that in fact, I that's a lot of what informs the stories that I write. Um, the, the two stories that I've written um, lately, one of them is called... Um, the pillow and the, the what's it called the pillow the pillow and the king or something like that but it it's a very strange story that emerged um i was in a group where we were doing a there's supposed to be a psychic development group i told a friend of mine i'd go with her to one but even though i don't care for these things very much <laughs> but one of the exercises that we were supposed to do is be in these little groups and and a person um, was given, they had to draw out of a basket like two little pieces of paper that had like different things written on them. And mm -hmm. then you were supposed to try to construct, you had like five minutes to try to construct a story <laughs> of these props. So the two props that came up was pillow and octopus <laughs> for me. Okay. Lovecraft, octopus. Yeah. And um, yep. so I sat there and I didn't, I couldn't actually think of anything. I just started talking. And I, and this story came out of me that is kind of like, I think of it as like an anti, an anti Sufi story. It's kind of done in the style of a Sufi story, <coughs> but it doesn't have the same moral <laughs> that a Sufi story would. <laughs> and, and it's, and it's got sort of this weird, affect to it you know like most sufi stories have a didactic purpose you know they're supposed to, they, mm -hmm. they tell you about you know enlightenment or fana or 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 you know spiritual enlightenment you know whatever this one it's a teaching the, yeah they're story. teaching stories this is just the story about a king who didn't want to be one and and figured out a way of getting out of it <laughs> you know and and, and and there are parts of it as I was writing it, I, I later on, then, you know, that week I went and I wrote it down because once I started the story, you know, it was one of those things that once you start the story, it wouldn't shut up. So I got yeah, home. Yeah. And this, this damn King kept talking and kept going through whatever <laughs> he was going through. And I was like, okay, I guess I got to write you down. Fine. I'll write it down. <laughs> right. I'm just going <laughs> to, I'll put it down and just do it. So I have written that. And another one I've written, I don't know if you're familiar with Octavia Butler's um, Xenogenesis Trilogy. I haven't read that yet. You would like it. You don't read this. I know I would. You, you would. You would really like it. It's, it's, it's actually one of the most inventive pieces of fiction in the last 40 years. <laughs> but um, I will read some fiction if it's science fiction or horror. But... Um, there's this interesting, it, I, I mean, I, I can't go all into this because it's a bit of a spoiler, but in, in the third book, it's a book about human beings destroying the world and then extraterrestrials coming and reconstituting our world through a, a certain type of genetic manipulation. And there's all kinds of questions about that and everything. Well, anyway, 
halfway through the, the, the third book of the trilogy, there's this interesting genetic conundrum that emerges in the being of two personalities that emerge. It's never explained. It's oh. never explained in the book how this happens and what their connection to a particular community that has managed to remain hidden and isolated for like two two centuries or three centuries. Um, it's just never explained. And so what this story does is explain it. It gives the backstory. Oh, is nice. the backstory. And and because as when I reread it, I you know I read it back in it, I used it as part of my dissertation. Um, as part of a reading thing for my dissertation. So I could get certain ideas about race and genetics and extraterrestrials and alienness and stuff for my dissertation. And more, and then more recently, I reread it. And I realized that in the 20 years since I'd read it, that I've changed and I noticed different things about it than I had before. Mm-hmm. That's how you know it's a right. really good <laughs> series of books. And um, I realized, oh, there's this whole other level of meaning in terms of colonialism and other things that you can read into this that I just, I didn't even see before. Um, and I don't, in fact, the level that I saw it at, I don't know that many people have seen it because nobody's talked about it. But anyway, this book addresses that. I mean, the story nice. addresses that. So I've written those two and I'm halfway through a a book, a story about the Mardrakor. The Mardrakor is, that's the Persian name for the being that we call a manticore. Oh. And the, the manticore is of Persian origin. A lot of people don't know that. And it, in really, really old Persian mythology, the Mardrakor is not a monster, it's a herald. And um, and it has a particular way of, of heralding. And it and there are implications that it's a servant <coughs> of of the great dragon who lives in the mountains in, of in the north who in later mythology and folklore just kind of became a demon, but it's really clear that he wasn't originally, you know what I mean? Way back, way back right. when. And uh, the Mardrakor is implied to possibly be a servant of, uh, of, oh, this, nice. of this dragon. And um, the Mardrakor... How do I put this? The Mardrakor makes people disappear. Uh, mm. That's that. I mean, that's the story, and he makes people disappear by, or he or she <laughs> makes people disappear by calling to a person and enticing them with something that they most want, and. Um, then when that person, when it consumes that person, that person completely 
disappears from the earth like nothing is left. It's like they never existed. Except maybe in the memories of you know family or people who knew them. <laughs> and and so the way I'm imagining the Mardrakor is that 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 the Mardrakor is actually a a um, a master of love. And and the only the only pro the only thing about the that when when a person is absorbed by the Mardrakor, they become this love for another. It's like that's how the Mardrakor reincarnates, is that it has to absorb someone. And then that next person becomes the next Mardrakor, but they are a servant of the of this dragon who, according to Persian legend, when the corruption on earth, this is Zoroastrian legend, when the when the corruption on earth reaches a certain fever pitch, <coughs> the, the dragon will return and will consume a third of the world. So the Mardrakor acts as a herald when people start to disappear. You know it's because they're being absorbed by love and this the end is near. Like <laughs> Something that. like that. I haven't quite figured out how to do it. <laughs> but it's about it's kind of like a, a cooler version of the rapture. Yeah, well and it's um and it's focused around a, a kid, a a guy who who mm-hmm. realizes his uncle realizes that he is supposed to be the next person to be absorbed by the Mardrakor because there is a magical understanding that if you give yourself willingly to the Mardrakor, you can, con- you can control some of those actions. So anyway, th- this is sort of how it's developing. I haven't written it all yet. So I have, a, I have sort of a title for whatever the next volume is, comes out. It could be years. Of course, I'm a complete nerd, so the title will be something like "Recondite Introspections" or something, <laughs> you know, because they're 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 going to be retellings of stories, mm-hmm. re, re, retellings like of accounts. So, so, so like sometime it. when you and I have time, I'll have to tell you about my, my idea for the novelist. <laughs> decide who I can point that at because <laughs> I just don't think I can do it myself. I've done some of the research, but it's just kind of <laughs> the novel is just too huge. The, yeah, they are big. Just too huge. They are definitely big. Well, thank you. Sure. Thank you so much for, for visiting with me. You'll have to come back when Morgana is available. Yes. She was very sad to miss Professor Wang. Well, we'll have to come up with more things to talk about. I'm sure we can think of something. <laughs> Thank you very sure, much. of course. Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you.